preaching through the Word of God in regard to, is it easy to believe? There are people that have perverted the gospel, have added works to the gospel, have pretty much made the gospel a Roman Catholic gospel. They do this because they don't understand the purpose of the millennial kingdom. They don't understand the judgment seat of Christ. They have turned it into a picnic. And um, because they are weak on the judgment seat of Christ and the terror of the Lord and the accountability of believers, they have a perverted gospel. Now, tonight we're going to look at the witness of the Spirit. Dear Father, we ask that you help us to discern your word. We do pray that those who are listening will understand the certainty of your truth, the infallibility of your scriptures. And Lord, I pray that they will understand the gospel in all of its freeness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What I mean by the witness of the Spirit is there are people that are saying, well, you know you are saved by the witness of the Spirit. And what that ends up meaning to the average person hearing that message is that there's some type of feeling, some type of subjective, mystical feeling by which the Holy Ghost communicates to you that you are saved. Obviously, this is going to come and go. People are going to interpret this in so many different ways. There's nobody that could have absolute assurance. Nor is that the grounds for your assurance. Describe the way they describe it. So let's just dive in here. The epistle of 1 John, unlike the gospel of John, is written to believers. The gospel of John is primarily written that you might believe. John, in his epistle, is writing to people already saved, that they might not sin, that they might have fellowship with the Lord Jesus now and be found unto praise at the judgment seat of Christ. But because nobody knows anything about the judgment seat of Christ today, hardly, because they have done away with it, they have no place for it, they believe that the book of 1 John is written so you will know how to be saved. And so as they read through the book, make sure you're loving your brother, make sure you're doing this, make sure you're not hating, make sure you're doing this, make sure you're feeding your brother. All of these things, they say, oh, this is how I know I'm saved. I got to go out here and be good. What's your standard? How can anybody know they're saved with absolute certainty in such a system? 
So, when it says in chapter 5, verse 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. John uses this phrase, born of God, in two different ways as the Bible does. You will see 1 Peter 1.23, I believe it is, in the King James Bible only. That says not only is there a new birth, there is a present tense new birth in regard to your practical Christian life. A working out through experience of your Christian walk. But whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and listen to this, everyone that loveth him that begat, that's God, he's the one that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So John's saying, if you say you love God, then you're going to love whoever God has birthed. Your brother is anyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And if you truly love God, you're going to love anyone begotten of Him. This is important because John has dealt with a lot of believers in his life as he travels around various churches as the apostle. And I'm sure he has heard many times an excuse. Well, I love God, but... I'm not going to love him. So John's saying that no, if you love God, you're going to love God's Son. So he's going to go on. Listen to this now. By this we know. Now notice that word know. There are different degrees of knowing in the Bible. There is the knowledge of certainty you know for sure. You know for certain. Then there is a knowledge of confidence. Relative. But confidence. By this we know that we love the children of God. How do you know if you're loving your brother? How do you know if you're loving your sister? How do you know when we love God and keep His commandments? It's not a feeling, folks. And listen, it's certainly not when they think you're loving. Paul says, the more I love, the less you love me, the less I be loved. In this modern age of confusion, if you love somebody, they're going to think you hate them because we're in a very foolish age that hasn't been taught what love is. As they mature, hopefully, in wisdom and years and in Christ, they'll look back and say, oh, that was love that somebody showed to me. But you cannot judge whether or not you're loving somebody, your brother or sister, by their response. There's no way. In fact, I would believe the tendency of believers of this age is to love those that hate them and hate those that love them as Paul said, was already occurring among the carnal churches in his age. So we have a test right here. It's not your feelings. 
It's not the feelings of the person you're loving. No, that is not the standard for whether or not you are loving your brother or sister. This is the standard. When you love God and keep His commandments, to the degree that you are keeping God's commandments, that is the degree that you are loving those in your life that are believers. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Don't say that God has given you something that is hurtful in some wicked way in your life. So this requires not only the conscience. You can't have your conscience seared to know whether you love somebody. It's not some degree of emotional feeling or emotional introspection. It's found in the degree that you can prove, to whatever degree you can, that you are keeping God's commandments. You've got to judge yourselves in reason. You've got to be sober based on the testimony of the Scriptures. That's how you know if you're loving Look in the Bible. See if you're obeying God's commandments. Come to church so you can get preached to. So you can get convicted. Read the Bible. Pray. Ask God. Study the Bible. Listen to people when they reprove you. I beseech you, therefore, says Paul in Romans 12, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't say you're not to love God with your body. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It's going to take reason for you to serve God. You've got to think things out. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, your reason, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And you know what? When you do that, to the degree that you can know confidently that you're obeying God to whatever light you have, that's the degree that you know you're loving your brother or sister. Now listen. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think of your works. Don't think of your goodness. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Faith is related to sobriety, to reason, to thinking. You're not to say, oh, well, you know what? I know I'm keeping God's commandments, so I must be very loving to my brother and sister. Hey, prove that to whatever degree you can. Prove it confidently to yourself. Be sober in your thinking and estimation of how good you are. Because if you say you're without sin, you're deceiving yourself and you're making God a liar. So John's going to go on now. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Everybody to some degree believes people. Some people you shouldn't believe. Some people you should believe. Some statements are credible. Others are not. But all of us, to some degree, somewhere, receive the witness of men. 
and the witness of God is greater because God is perfect. Man is not. For this is the witness of God which He hath testified of His Son. If you're going to believe people sometimes, believe God always and believe what He said about His Son. Here is God's record. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So God says, I'm giving you a promise. In my Son is eternal life. If you receive him, if you believe upon my Son, you have eternal life. God promised that. That's the record that God has given you. So the Bible says, if you believe it, turn me up a little, you have the witness in yourself. What is the witness in yourself? It's that you know you believe. Do you know whether or not you believe God? When He gave you John 3.16, do you know whether you believe that or not? When He says, My Son died for you. He lived a perfect life and died for you. And this is the record. If you believe upon Him, you have eternal life. Do you believe that? You know whether you believe it or not. He said, how do you know you're saved? Because I believe the Bible. And I have the witness in myself. I know I believe it. He says, if you believe it, you're saved. And I know I believe it. How about that? I don't need anything else. In fact, if you add anything to that, I'm going to try to be nice here. If you add anything to this, you're unbiblical and you're very foolish. Because you're making no logical sense whatsoever. Because if anything after believing has to do with your works to know whether or not you're saved in eternity or not. There is no way on this earth, if you have half a brain, if you have just the ability of my pinky to reason, there is no way you could ever know you're saved absolutely. Because you don't know exactly where the line is. How good do you have to be? How many works do you have to do? What kind of works do you have to do? How perfect do you have to be? I'll tell you how perfect you have to be. You have to be absolutely perfect. And Jesus was the one that was absolutely perfect. And He was God in the flesh. And as a man and as God, He died for your sins upon the cross. And He finished the work. And the Bible says, if you believe in Him, then you are eternally saved. You have eternal life. And you have the record in yourself. You don't have to ask somebody. These things have I written unto you. Now that's a phrase John uses a few times in the epistle. In every case, it's talking about the things in the very context, the things that were preceding what he is now saying. These things have I written unto you. So he's talking about the things he's dealing with now in chapter 5. That believe on the name of the Son of God. Now there are a couple of ways we can take this. But let's take it in the most simplest way right now. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. So these are believers that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. There's a sense in which eternal life can refer to you not having judgment, temporary death at the judgment seat of Christ, so you have it immediately at the coming of the Lord. But... 
There are many that take this to simply mean this. He wants you to know that you're saved by the testimony of God. Because God said so. Because you know whether or not you believe or not. And that's important because the Gnostics that came later and during this time of John began to say, listen, don't worry about your body. Don't worry about anything physical. It's all in your heart. And you will have this knowledge, this gnosis. You will have this mystical experience and this feeling. And that's how you know whether or not you have eternal life. Through this gnosis, through this knowledge, uh, this mystical knowledge. Because they're, they're, they're basically mixing Christianity with occultism and, uh, and paganism. And that's what the Gnostics did, see. So you need to know that you're saved because you believe. Because God has promised it. But He wants you to know more than the fact that you are saved in eternity. He wants you to continue to believe on Jesus. So you can get answered prayer, so you can get fellowship, so you can walk in God's truth, and so at the judgment seat of Christ you will not be ashamed. That's why it's important that you don't have a messed up Bible that butchers this verse and just about all the other verses in 1 John. You couldn't find the truth in an NIV or an NASB or American Standard or an RV or any of that other garbage. I tell you what, it's works, salvation, Gnostic, Roman Catholic manuscripts, Roman Catholic Bibles. It's of the occult. Anything dealing with certainty and truth has been taken out of it. It's a works, salvation, Roman Catholic, so-called Bible. Believe the record. This is the record. God hath given unto us eternal life. This life is in His Son. It's the same thing He says over here in John 5 in His Gospel. Verily, verily, verily I say unto you, He that heareth My word, okay, you got to do more than hear though, and believeth on Him that sent Me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come in condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The Lord wants us to know that when you believe, you are believing that you have everlasting life because of what He did. Now there's a problem. False teachers are going to come and say, wait a minute, you don't know if you're saved. I don't. Well, are you bringing forth fruit? How about you, buddy? Are you bringing forth fruit? Well, you've got to bring forth fruit or you're not saved. Well, I tell you what, you fire away, show me my sin. I'll fire away, show you yours. Let's see where we're standing. And neither one of us have perfect judgment. Well, you've got to keep the commandments or you're not saved in eternity. Well, you've got to keep the commandments or you're not saved in eternity. What makes you think that your list of commandments that you keep guarantees your salvation? It's just absolute insanity because they don't have a judgment seat of Christ. So they have to have some type of rod or, 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 or stick or something to hold over your head so they pervert the gospel. John the Baptist, like many believers, went through a trial of doubts. He said, Art thee who should come? Or should I look for another? I'm having a doubt whether Jesus is really He. So somebody as good as John that preached the gospel 
through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. If John can have doubts after he's saved, you can have doubts. Especially when you got false teachers everywhere wanting a world church, a giant Masonic Roman Catholic world church, and they got to get rid of that gospel. They got to have a salvation by works because they know Rome teaches you're saved by grace through faith and works. If you're going to unite with that, you've got to get rid of the thing that separates you from the Roman Catholic Church. They want a world church. So you're going to have confused people. You're going to have people that can't reason. You're going to have people that don't know the judgment seat of Christ. They say, oh, well, then people are going to get away with all kinds of stuff. They're antinomian. You can't just have people get saved freely. No, God's able to discipline His children here and later. So no wonder so many have doubts. They've grown up. No wonder there's so many people that that have believed supposedly for decades and then they say, I just got saved the other day. No wonder. And I wonder if they even got saved the other day. If you have a works gospel. People can sometimes hear the gospel and get saved after living under that. Why don't you teach the simple gospel, people? We need the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You need to know you're saved. Salvation is in two parts, and you need both of them. You need to know I'm saved in eternity, and you need to understand that there is a salvation at the judgment seat of Christ, and you need to hope in that. You need to strive for that. And you need to strive for confidence that you are going to get the well done, thou good and faithful servant. What happens if you don't have the assurance, if you don't know you're saved, or some devil or some preacher comes in and convinces you you're not saved uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone, it's going to be hard for you to stand. Because you got to know you have the power of God that He gives to His children. What I'm trying to tell you is assurance of salvation must rest on the testimony of God because all else is sinking sand. But you've got this mystical teaching that leads believers or seekers to find some burning bosom of the Mormons or some type of feeling. And they say, do you have the witness of the Spirit? Let the Holy Ghost tell you whether you're saved or not. By this you are to know whether you have eternal life and you're really a child of God if the Spirit tells you you're saved. And what this usually involves is inspecting your own works and fruit to see if you have enough to think yourself eternally saved. Which means the humble people will say, I don't think I got enough. And the arrogant, pharisaical, proud people will say, oh yes, I'm doing just fine. I know I'm saved. I got the witness of the Spirit and I got the evidence and I've got the fruit. I know I'm saved. Again, to humble people, every time they hear a message, every time they have a camp meeting, every time they get stirred emotionally, will come to the altar and say, I'm going to try to get saved this time. I'm going to try to really have that heart belief and not that terrible head knowledge. I'm going to really, really try to get that mystical witness of the Spirit. I'm going to try to give up everything and surrender everything. 
It's a horrible, horrible thing. Not that you're surrendering everything. Not that you're trying to get rid of sin and purge yourself of sin, but that you're doing it to be saved. You're doing it to have assurance to be saved. You're not doing it because you already are saved. You're not doing it because you love Jesus. You're not doing it because you're racing for the prize He gives to His children that will live obediently. You're not doing it so you can have answered prayer and joy and glorify God and love God. You're not doing it for those reasons. You're doing it so you can have assurance of salvation. And that's the very thing you're not to do. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit itself, that's the Holy Ghost, beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The phrase children of God in the Bible comes in two categories. There are children of God positionally, in the eternal sense. Then there are children of the resurrection, says Luke. The first resurrection, which are practical, experiential children of God. That is, they're obedient children of God. If you say, I've never heard. You hear what this preacher just said? Stop that sermon for a second. Do you hear what he said? That, just turn it off right now. Because he just said there's two ways you can be a child of God. I've never heard that one time in my life. Well, preacher, I wonder if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Our Lord Jesus said that you may be the children of your Father. Now, if they're already children of your Father, how are they maybe becoming children of your Father? He's writing the light of the world. He's writing to the children of God that you may be the children of your Father. He's telling you to do something good, that you may be the children of your Father. He's telling you to love your enemies, that you may be the children of your Father. Not that you may be children of the Father, children of your Father. He's already your Father. How in the world can He already be your Father, but the Lord tells you to love your enemies so you can be His child? He means in a practical, experiential sense. What about this one? Philippians 2, Do all things without murmuring and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, comma, the sons of God, comma, without rebuke, comma, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Don't walk around murmuring and disputing and always just having such a negative spirit about everything and, and just everything's got to be so much trouble just pulling teeth to get you to have faith and get you to do something, you know. It's just everything's always bad, you know. It's just not a good witness. It's not a good witness. But God's saying, do all these things that you may be the sons of God. He means practically. It means experientially, not just positionally and provisionally. Be children in regard to the coming first resurrection, not just eternity. That ye may be, in both cases, is a manifested practicality, a walk of experience. It's this right here, Ephesians 5. For you were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. So in one sense, you're a child of God because you are light in the, in the Lord. But hold on. Walk as children of light, that you may be in your walk what you are in your position. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. Let me show you one more. 2 Corinthians 6. 
What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord. That's Christian separation. You have to do that. You have to say, you know what, I can't be around this person anymore. They're not living right. It's not good for them. It's not good for me. And touch not the unclean thing. They had to take one fellow that was fornicating in Corinth, chapter 5, uh, Corinthians, and they had to put him out of the church. There's some people you have to put away from you in your own personal life. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. In other words, in one sense, you're already His children, but if you don't separate, there's a sense in which you are not experientially living in your walk as His child, and so He's not going to experientially necessarily uh, be a father unto you in regard to rewarding you and, and blessing you with His fellowship. This isn't saying if you don't separate, you're not automatic, you're just not saved. At all? Paul's going to go on in Romans 8 and elsewhere, and he's going to talk about firstborn sons, that they got a double portion. So what God's telling you is there are people that are saved that have the first blessing. They know they're saved in eternity. But then there are people that have the second blessing of Abraham. That double portion. That millennial blessing. You've got the second resurrection. Now, that's by faith alone. Now get the first resurrection, which is blessed and holy, is he that had part in the first resurrection. It's through faith and patience, says Paul in Hebrews 6. So now look at that. Romans 8. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together, friend. That's something you're not going to get. He says, if you suffer, you shall reign. If you don't suffer, you're not going to reign. The Bible says that you've got to suffer with Christ. You've got to be willing to be holy. You've got to be willing to keep God's commandments. You've got to be willing to keep God's commandments in the face of this world that will persecute you for loving Christ and obeying Christ. But if you will walk in obedience, you will not just be a child of God. You will be a firstborn son. You will have a double portion. You will be glorified when Jesus comes to reign in the millennial kingdom and not have to wait till afterwards. You have a big list of those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul uses that phrase as the millennial kingdom of God, the temporal kingdom of God. Look at first. Corinthians chapter 15 and check it out. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we belong to God. Remember the duality. You are to know with absolute certainty that you are a child of God. The Spirit beareth witness. He tells you so in the Bible. That's externally. He gives you a record. The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. He gives you the record that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are saved and you have eternal life. And the Spirit bears witness with your spirit, your mind, that you are saved because you know you believe. But you are also to know in a confident way, to whatever degree you can, 
that you are pleasing to God in your Christian walk. And this requires constant repentance and confession of sin to bring forth hope that you're going to get the well done. Nobody knows for certain they're going to get the well done. But you don't want to say, you know what, I know I'm not going to get it. Because now you're telling God He can't bring you in. You're like the, the, the generation there that said He can't bring me into the land of Canaan because the giants are there. They're going to kill me. No, you got to go to God and say, No, Lord, I know you can give me the strength to win the prize. I know you can give me the strength to conquer the giants. I'm not going to faint in the midst. Oh, but Lord, these commandments feel... You said they're not grievous, but they sure feel grievous sometimes to my flesh, Lord. Especially when the devil's at my heels. So the witness of the Spirit is externally the Word of God. But He testifies to your spirit, your mind. First of all, that you're saved in eternity by the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone. And you know if you believe or not. Secondly, you know what His warnings and commandments are. And you know the power and the promises that He's given you. That sin shall not have dominion over you. You've got to claim that promise and you've got to know it. And that leads to confidence in your life. You're to have absolute assurance of eternal life. But in regard to the prize, the millennial or second blessing of Abraham is through faith and patience. What James calls faith and works, not faith only. James says it's faith made perfect by works. And if you ever get time, look in the scriptures what made perfect means. People said, see, you have faith, but you don't have faith made perfect by works. You have to have works to make your faith perfect. Wait a second. In the Bible, it says Jesus was made perfect. you telling me Jesus wasn't here? Jesus was already sinless. Jesus never sinned, but the Bible says He was made perfect. Does that mean it, Jesus wasn't real until He was made perfect? That's ridiculous. The Bible says God's strength's made perfect in weakness. Are you telling me God's strength's not here until it's made perfect in your weakness? That's ridiculous. James isn't talking about a fake faith. He's talking about a faith that doesn't have works added to it. Anybody with eyes ought to be able to see that in James chapter 2. James is saying, no, it's faith and works if you're going to be found worthy at the judgment seat of Christ. He deals with Abraham in Genesis chapter 22 when he obeyed God in the sacrifice of Isaac. How does the Spirit testify or witness to you in regard to the prize? He shows you the Bible, the promises, the warnings, the commands. Then you reason with God about these things. You examine yourself. You say, God, I don't think I'm going to get it. God says, confess your sins, and I'm just and faithful to forgive you and cleanse you. Are you going to believe that promise? The Bible says God will have mercy on them that hope in His mercy. You're not going to hope in God's mercy? Oh, no, He's not going to forgive me. Well, are you calling God a liar? Why don't you go to God and say you're sorry? Why don't you turn from your sin? He says if you'll turn from your sin, He'll have mercy on you. He says if you'll fear Him, He'll show mercy to you. To sit down and say, well, I know, you know, that I'm not going to get the promise. I'm not going to get the well done, thou good and faithful servant. You're mocking God. It's not wrong, believe me, to be convicted and understand. But you're to go to God and get cleansing. You're to go to God and be like that publican that smote himself on the breast but went on his way rejoicing. 
You're to have a rejoicing of hope that you went to God. You confessed your sin. And now you're hoping God shows you mercy as you show mercy on others. I'm not telling you to have absolute assurance that you are going to get the prize. I'm telling you to get confident. You're to have pre-sin fear. But what you're not to do is get out here and have post-sin fear. Believe me, you need to have it, but it's not the ideal. Don't get out here and do something horrible this week. Get on the computer and do something horrible. Or get out here and do something and lie. Get out here and do something terrible and commit one of those sins in Galatians 5 or Ephesians 5 or 1 Corinthians 6. Don't get out here and commit a sin unto death. Because here's what you're going to have. A certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. You said, man, I'm in trouble. I had joy and peace the other day, but now, oh man, I feel undone, buddy. I feel I'm in trouble with God. You are in trouble with God. Post-sin fear is great. But why'd you have to go get post-sin fear? Why didn't you have pre-sin fear and not even do the thing that you did? You say, now what do I do? Well, you're in trouble at the judgment seat. The Bible says there's terror of the Lord. He might kill you right now, and you don't even have time to repent. You say, what do I do? Well, remember David did commit a sin unto death, and he did repent. Psalm 51, I'd read Psalm 51, get on my face before God, ask God for forgiveness, and then I'd hope in His mercy, and then I'd get up and start showing God, I'm bringing forth fruit, meat for repentance. And then I'd go show some mercy to other people in my life. And I'd continue to fear God. And then you start getting your joy back. You start getting some confidence back. But you always remember, Lord, if you say, well done, to me, it's going to be because you showed me mercy. That's why they take their crowns off and lay them at the feet of Jesus. And say, thou art worthy, O Lord. Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. We're talking about reward here. People read the book of Hebrews just like they do the book of 1 John. They think it's talking about salvation and eternity. The book of Hebrews is talking about your reward. It's talking about your high priest bringing you over to get the prize. People say, I don't like that word confidence here in the King James Bible. Hey, that shows you something. It shows this is a preserved word of God, buddy whether they understood it or not. He's talking about a confidence here. You're to have a confidence. You are to have a relative hope and assurance that you're going to get the well done. You're not to be so high and mighty. Well, there's people that used to have confidence that they're going to be crowned at the judgment seat of Christ. And you look at them now, they have no hope. What happened? I've been messing with sin, brother. It sure, t- it sure made a different person out of you. Now I'm full of dread and torment. And I have to lie to myself. I have to sear my conscience. 
I'm leaving a fundamental church. I'm leaving your church. I I'm leaving anything that teaches the fear of God because I need people to teach me something that tickles my ears so I can sin and still be comfortable. No, he says in Hebrews 6, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence through the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience. That's not how you're saved in eternity. This is the second blessing of Abraham in Genesis 22, that in blessing I will bless you. Inherit the promises. you got to hope for it. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't get out of here and walk in torment. Hebrews 3, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. You say, I didn't, I didn't hold it steadfast unto the end. I've sinned like the devil. Well, you better get on your face, man. You're not dead yet. Get on your face. Somehow or another, David found it, and David's going to be in the kingdom. Go to God right now. Don't presume on him. But get cleansed right now. Before you get turned over. There is this. In eternal salvation, you are to have absolute assurance that you're saved by faith alone. When it comes to the kingdom, when it comes to the reward, when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. That's 1 Corinthians 10. You're not to have this presumption. Notice he says in chapter 4 of Corinthians, Moreover, it is required in stewards, we're a steward of God, that a man be found faithful. This is talking about you being faithful at the judgment seat of Christ. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not my own self. For I know nothing by myself. He says, I don't know anything I'm doing wrong right now, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judgeth me is the Lord. So listen to what he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. That is, if you are due praise. Listen to me, folks. He's saying here that in one sense, he does not judge himself at all. It's impossible. He's talking about absolute judgment. He's talking about works. He's talking about the type of fruit that you're bringing forth. Don't ever absolutely judge your works and say, I know that I know absolutely with all certainty that I'm going to get the crown and I'm going to get that well done. What if there's sins you don't even know about yet? What about if you're so blind and hardened you don't even know you have certain sins yet? Why don't you do like David did and say, God, search me. Show me if there's any wicked way in me. I don't think there's anything wrong right now that I'm doing. But show me, God. Reveal it to me. And you've got to always understand, God's judgment's not your judgment. That's why Paul says, I'm going to be judged by man's judgment. He's talking about absolute judgment. Absolute. You're not to have absolute judgment, absolute assurance in regard to the well done, in regard to the judgment seat of Christ. But you are to have absolute assurance in regard to eternity. That is, you can say, I know that I know that I know I'm saved in eternity. I know it for certain because God said so and I believe and I know I believe. Well, what about the prize of the high calling, the crown? Oh, I don't know that absolutely. I, I'm hoping and I believe God is able to do it. And I have faith in my God 
and I'm hoping in His mercy, and I have turned from some sins that were in my life, and I'm asking God to show me if there's anything else in me I need to change, and I'm trying to be open and sensitive to that as I read the Scriptures. But I'm not going to say absolutely that I know I'm going to get into the coming kingdom. That is the kingdom of reward, the temporal kingdom. But I do know I will have eternity no matter what I do. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. This man's work, every bit of it burned up. It was nothing. It was good for nothing. He was unfruitful at the judgment seat of Christ, but he's still saved. That's eternal salvation. But he's not going to get the kingdom. He's not going to get the reward. He's not going to get the reward. No, he's not going to receive the reward. He's going to receive terror at the judgment seat of Christ. He's going to appear in shame. That's the thousand-year kingdom. That's the judgment seat of Christ. That's not eternity. So what should I do in regard to the reward? Well, he says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourself, whether you be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. That is disqualified. Now, wait a minute. If I'm to examine myself, I thought Paul just said he doesn't judge himself. Well, I'm not saying you can know this absolutely. You are to examine yourself and you are to do everything you can to have confidence that you're living right. But you're not to have absolute assurance that you're right in the sight of God to where you're going to be rewarded and get the well done because God's the judge, not you. He's already judged His Son and found His works perfect and received His blood for salvation and eternity. Therefore, I don't, have to, I don't have to add any works to that. That's a mockery. That's blasphemy. I know I'm saved in eternity by what Jesus did. I'm talking about the reward. I don't know I'm going to get the reward. I hope I do. I'm going to keep striving for it. Let's go back to John as we wind down here real quick. First John 3, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence toward God. If your conscience isn't condemning you, well, now you have some confidence. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. That'll be the first thing you ask. That you might be accounted worthy to escape all the things that are coming. That you might glorify God and get the well done. You have confidence. Now, don't be absolutely certain because just because your conscience doesn't condemn you, hey, God's not your conscience. He's greater than your heart. 1 John 4, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. You're going to try to walk as Jesus walked. You're going to try to dwell in the Lord. You're going to try to walk in love. You're going to try to keep His commandments so you know that you are walking in His love to the degree that you can. That you might have boldness. Confidence. Boldness. 
chapter 2, verse 3, hereby we do know. That is the confident knowing that we know Him. It's not talking about eternity. If we keep His commandments. You're telling me you know you're saved because you keep His commandments? You're out of your mind, man. And now, little children, abide in Him. That means keep His commandments. Walk in fellowship. That when He shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. There's going to be some people, they know they're not living right. Their heart's already condemning them. Man, if your conscience right now is telling you you're not living right in something, fix it right now tonight. Fix it this very moment. Tell God you're sorry and you're going to try to get that right with Him and His power. Anybody that looks at their works for assurance of eternal salvation, you're not an honest person. But in regards to the reward, you're not meant to have absolute assurance. You say, I never heard of this relative knowing in the Bible. Really? Let's look at Philippians 1. Follow me here for a second. Paul says, for I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's basically saying, I know I'm going to get out of jail because you're praying for me. And having this, what's our King James word? Confidence. Did he say this absolute certainty? This absolute assurance? No. This confidence. I know, there's the word again, that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul says, I know I'm getting out of here because you're praying for me and I have confidence that I'm going to get out. But wait a minute. Chapter 2. Him, therefore, I hope to sin presently so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. I believe what you see here is Paul having a relative confidence. But he doesn't ultimately know what God's going to do. He may be martyred right then and there. Or he might get out and have another run with his ministry which most people think he did. So eternal salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, Romans 4. Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. If it has anything to do with your works, you're out of your mind. Man, there's no way you could ever know you're saved. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of faith of Abraham, which is the father of us all. The Bible says the Spirit beareth witness with your spirit, not with your body, not through your feelings. Your spirit is your mind. The Spirit beareth witness with your mind that you're a child of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, said the Spirit of man which is in him. That's your mind. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. He goes on to say we have the mind of Christ. Faith is reasonable. We'll talk about this in the future a little bit more. We'll talk about how Abraham reasoned. He used logic in regard to the sacrifice of Isaac. And oh, he pleased God because he reasoned. He pleased God because he sat down and said, wait a second now. Let me use logic here and think this thing out. He glorified God with that type of faith. 
The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 3, and that we may be delivered, that we may be delivered from unreasonable, only in one Bible, the King James Bible, unreasonable and wicked men, for all men have not faith. Faith is not unreasonable at all. Faith is not unreasonable. But all the new versions, they get rid of anything dealing with certainty, infallibility, anything dealing with reason, so they can keep you mystical and mysticism, like a Gnostic and a New Ager. Because the occultists, they hate reason, see. They want you to live by intuition and gnosis. Dear Father, I do pray the people, and anybody that listens to this message tonight, I do pray that they will know that they're saved if they believe the gospel, if they believe the record you've given of your son, that they will know they have eternal life with certainty. Because they know they have the witness in themselves. They know they believe you. And they know you don't lie and cannot lie. And you said they had eternal life because Jesus died for them. And you said all who believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But Lord, you've called us now that we're saved to walk in that light and provision that you've made for us. And race for the prize of the high calling. If by any means we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. This first resurrection, this prize, Lord. If we suffer, we shall reign. Now, Lord, let us push forth through repentance and confession of sin to have confidence and good hope that we are well able through your power to overcome our enemies to overcome sin for the devil's at our heels Lord trying to keep us discouraged faint hearted without hope that we'll just fall down in the face of sin and waddle in it and be bitter and resentful and accuse you of grievous commandments that we cannot keep even with your power. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Thank you, God, for being merciful with your children. In Jesus' name, amen.